Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is Thursday, January 9th, 2014. Today we are reading from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. We are on page 8 in Bill's story. The bottom of that page, the paragraph that begins near the end of that bleak November. Today's readers are Nancy T, Esther C, Du, and Katie F, in that order. The reference number for yesterday, the share code for Wednesday, the 8th of January, is 5735. That's 5735. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who, through shared experience, strength, and hope, are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose. OA's fifth tradition states each group has but one primary purpose to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive overeating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I would now like to ask Marietta to please read the 12 steps. Good morning. This is Marietta from Virginia and the 12 steps. One, we admit we are powerless over food and our lives have become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. Four, made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God to ourselves and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, we're entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we'd harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people whenever possible except when to do so, do so would injure them or others. Ten, Continued to take personal inventory when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. 11. Sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. 12. Having had a spiritual awakening as a result of these steps, we try to carry this message to compulsive overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Marietta from Virginia. Thank you so much, Marietta. I'd now like to ask Melanie to please read the 12 traditions. Thank you, Janice. Good morning. My name is Melanie. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from Oregon. The 12 traditions. One, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Two, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders of a trusted servant. They do not govern. Three, the only requirement for OA membership is a desire to stop eating compulsively. Four, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Five, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. Six, an OA group but never endorsed finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contribution. Eight, 
Overeaters Anonymous should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. 10, Overeaters Anonymous has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, film, television, and other public media of communication. 12, anonymity is the spiritual foundation of all these traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personality. Pass. Thank you. Thank you, Melanie. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing, and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinence requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star one to unmute. Once you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star one to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone, except the speakers, should be muted. Today we resume our study. We are in the book Alcoholics Anonymous. We are in Bill's story, and we are on page 8. And we are in the third paragraph at the bottom of that page that begins near the end of that bleak November. And today I would like to ask Nancy T. to please get us started. Thank you so much. Good morning. This is Nancy T., Grateful Compulsive Overeater in Lewiston, Idaho. Near the end of that bleak November, I sat drinking in my kitchen. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there was enough gin concealed about the house to carry me through that night and the next day. My wife was at work. I wondered whether I dared hide a full bottle of gin near the head of our bed. I would need it before daylight. When I uh, read this paragraph before, um, after you told me which paragraph we'd be starting on, I read it, and since I read it to myself, I've been sitting here, and I know where Bill is in this paragraph because I've been there. I've been there with the food, and, um, you know, this is, he's hit his bottom. Two paragraphs ago, we saw that he hit his bottom, and the last sentence was, alcohol was my master. So at this point, he's given up trying He's giving up trying to, oh, my gosh, should I try this new diet that's out there? Oh, gosh, there's this new exercise that's supposed to take off three inches a week. And, you know, he's given up. He's done. He's conceded in his innermost self that alcohol is his master and there's no hope for him. That is a very lonely, sad place to be. And I remember that. I just, like, um, all it's about, this whole paragraph, all his thinking is about the alcohol. It's about do I have enough to get me through um, the night and the next day. Um, his wife's gone, so should he hide some um, at the head of the bed because he knew he was going to need it before morning. You know, I remember every day I would, on my way home from work, I would think, okay, what do I have to eat? You know, do I need to stop at the store? And most times, more days than not, I stopped and stocked up on my binge food because I wanted to make sure that I had enough. And if I didn't have enough, then my obsession was not just about the food, but should I, you know, get my clothes back on? Because usually the first thing I do is get in my comfortable clothes by, when I got home from work and um, just sit down and start binging. And if I, if I didn't think I had enough to get through that night until I was so full I couldn't hold anymore, I would start obsessing about, okay, maybe I should throw my clothes back on and go to the store, you know. And I knew I would, but it was all this obsession back and forth, should I or shouldn't I? It's all about Bill in this paragraph, all about Bill and the alcohol. And um, I like how um, they said it is in the paragraph before that, how bleak it is before the dawn or something like that, how dark it is before the dawn. So this is that dark place. He's in this dark place where it's just him and the booze. And 
I am so grateful I'm not there today. I'm so grateful that my life is not um, mastered by the food anymore. I have freedom from that. Um, But boy, in this paragraph, there is no freedom for Bill. He is chained to that alcohol, and he knows it. So he's just given up trying. But um, I'm glad I know the rest of the story. (laughs) It makes it not quite so sad. But um, thank you for allowing me to share, and with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Nancy. Would anyone like to comment on this paragraph? Lauren S. from Pittsburgh. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi. Lauren S. from Pittsburgh, recovered compulsive reader. Okay. What I want to point out in this paragraph is they say near the end of that bleak November. So this was 1934. Bill got sober December 11th of 1934. So, Bill, to his knowledge, when he's living in this time, when he is, he's he's uh, living during this day in 1934. He really doesn't know what's to come. He really thinks that it's seemingly hopeless, and all that's on his mind is that tunnel vision of where can I get my substance? Um, how can I get through the hour? Um, almost like a sick reverse one one day at a time, one hour at a time. But now that he's writing this book, these pages, years, um, about like four to five years later, he can see, oh, man, well, I only had a few weeks to go in this terrible addiction. And I relate to that now. Well, when I tell people my story, which is essentially when I do a Lauren story, a 12-step call to people, um, I tell people of my last debacles, which were so awful when I was doing them, hiding in my closet, binging, and um, like missing my grandma's 92nd birthday to binge on, uh, who even knows, whatever I did at the time, and uh, just things that... I was really doing the best I could in that moment. Um, it was either the food or kill myself. So Bilbo is writing this now, and he knows that it's only seemingly hopeless because only two weeks later he was to find an amazing journey. So, um, uh, yes, I will pass. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. And who is next? Jason. Thank you, Jason. There was someone right before you. Oh, hi, it's Liz in New Hampshire. Go ahead, please, and then Jason. Well, I just wanted to say that this, as I remember, um, after I'd been absent for quite a while and I, I picked up, uh, the disease definitely progressed, and I did things that I had never done before with the food, never. And um, I relate to this paragraph, not that I was hiding food because I lived alone, but I brought home quantities of food that I had never brought before because I couldn't decide what to buy. So I brought everything because I just had to have everything, massive quantities, because I might want this, I might want that, I might want a bite of this or a bite of that. So I would just buy incredible quantities of food. And it got to the point where the woman at the counter at the store actually made made a comment to me that you look like you're getting heavier, which was absolutely humiliating. One woman even asked me if I was um, pregnant because my stomach was so distended, but that didn't stop me. I just had to have, you know, my counter had to be covered with just an assortment of everything from ice cream to bread, everything. Even if I took one bite of each item, I had to have everything because that's how far my disease... And I never had gone to that degree before um, I got abstinent. But that's where I ended up because the disease had progressed right along with the years of my abstinence. It never stopped. And um, it's a little off topic, but my grandfather, who died from alcoholism, did hide his gin and his, his booze all over the house. He had places all over the house, in the barn, everywhere, where he hid his liquor. 
So this really resonates for me, and um, I'm very glad now to be um, in recovery and working the steps and not doing this anymore, because I look back and I see the insanity and the money that I spent, but the insanity, and I did it day after day after day, even after someone looked at me and said, you look pregnant, I didn't care. I would go out the next day and buy any every item, just bags and bags and bags of stuff and go home and eat. And I would I lived in New York City and I'd go out at midnight at one o'clock in the morning. Didn't care. Didn't even think about what could happen to me. I had to get my stuff and with that I'll pass. Thank you. And go ahead, Jason. Uh, thank you. I'm Jason, uh, recovering compulsive overeater. Yeah. With a certain satisfaction, I reflected there's enough gin concealed around the house to carry me through that night and the next day, and my wife was at work. That is, um, I progressed to that point. Where I really started out was my wife would leave the house, and I had this sort of infantile or childish habit where I would, I'd watch to make sure that she actually left. And because she would sometimes forget something and then come back, and I had to be careful, and I would really, you know, be sneaking behind curtains to make sure of it. And then I would decide how to eat the various sweets that were around the house. I figured she wouldn't notice if I just ate one of the brownies and then rearranged the stack just so, and then maybe go eat a few of the purelines and a spoonful of biscotti spread and maybe a little ice cream here, and and then. Over time, the volumes would drop to this sort of notably lower level, and uh, and then I would get really defensive when she would ask me about it. You know, thinking to myself, "Well, that was hey, that was days ago. It's not like I just ate all of that. It was just insane." And um, and from there, I kind of progressed to what's written in this paragraph. I kind of graduated to this uh, to this level where I would actually buy my own foods um, and either eat them on the way home and pretend like I hadn't, or just stash them in my bag and uh, wait till no one was around and go eat them. So I understand. Um, it, for me, it manifested as a, a kind of a childish, uh, lack of maturity, kind of infantile behavior, but I really understand that the sort of sneakiness, hiding stuff around the house. Uh, and with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Jason. Well, this is Janice, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. I love how Bill sets the stage. I love how Bill sets the stage for us. You know, in the previous paragraph to this, when I look at that, you know, I've been where Bill is. First, it was fear that sobered him for a little bit. You know, he was so afraid of what he had learned about where he was at physically that just for a short period of time, the fear was great enough to stop him. But he, it couldn't, he couldn't stay stopped. And everyone around him knew, knew with a certainty that they were going to have to watch him kill himself with drinking. They'd either have to lock him up somewhere or they'd have to just watch him kill himself with drinking. Everyone was resigned to the fact. But he sets the stage for us in that dark, dark place He says, I was soon to be catapulted into the fourth dimension. So he sets the stage for us so we know what's coming. We know something good is coming. And so he sets the stage for us because what is he doing here in this paragraph? He's sitting in his kitchen drinking. Drinking and thinking. Drinking and thinking. And I don't know about you, but I've been there. Eating and thinking. Eating and and thinking, you know, thinking about, do I have enough? Is there enough around hating myself for what I was doing? But resigned to it, resigned to it, knowing that I was alone, knowing that I could eat as much as I wanted, wondering if I had enough to last me through the day. You know, if my husband came home so I wouldn't have to go out again or pretend that I had forgotten something, I had to run an errand so I could go out and get more food. You know, here we are with Bill in his kitchen, thinking and drinking. He knew he would need it. He knew he would need it. It wasn't that he just wanted the alcohol anymore. He knew he would need it. But he sets the stage for us. He sets the stage 
for what is to come. It's a beautiful thing. And with that, I'll pass. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? Can Alice? Go ahead. Go ahead, Alice. And I just want to mention Liz is also in line. Oh, I'm sorry. Thank you. I missed Liz. First Alice and then Liz. This is Alice for Florida. And, um, man, this is one of those paragraphs that I so identify. I can just pull a picture of a day in my mind that was, you know, just very similar. And, um, you know, with the hiding of hiding of the gin, I used to, um, you know, hide, hide cake mixes under my, in my wheel well in my car. Um, where I had to be, uh, I had to use my car key to unlock it and pull it out, and I kept a, a supply of some things in there. And um, I remember on a Christmas day, my my husband and daughter were leaving on a flight um, out of town the following day, and um, this was a couple of days. It was Christmas Eve. I knew that I would need to get I, after I dropped them off at the airport in the morning, December 26th. I would need to begin eating immediately. And I knew that the stores were going to be closed on Christmas. So Christmas Eve, I went out and I bought a bunch of stuff and I put it in the, in the wheel well in the back of my car. Um, and as soon as I drove them to the airport, I, you know, stopped along the way home to, you know, satisfy the craving right then. And then I spent uh, probably five, six hours just binging and purging in my home, feeling such freedom I thought, you know, at that point, because they were in the air, they were really, really safely somewhere away where they were not going to be returning for something they forgot. And just that, um, you know, what was freedom was just relief, but there was just panic in it too, which is like, oh my God, what is going to happen to me today? And it just so happened that that evening too, I was due at seven o'clock to show up to an intensive um, for, you know, to stay somewhere for five days to to sober up and to get abstinent again and to work on, you know, some issues. And I spent that whole day just, you know, in, in the food, dangerously in the food, binging and vomiting. And I just, um, you know, I had, I had spoons, my gagging spoons hidden around the house in different places and in my car, you know, just always in that state of paranoia that someone, you know, my husband would find it and, and, and know and just, but just not caring because I needed I needed my drug, you know, so badly. So I just just the remembering of um keeping that stuff in my car. And you know what today, which is so cool, is that I have this abstinence kit in the trunk of my car and it's not locked up, it's not hidden and it's got, you know, a scale in there and some foods I might need if you know it's need to um something after my food for the day and just, man, I am so glad to be in this place today. And, and just because I had those bottoms, you know, like we talked about yesterday in the reading, it doesn't matter, you know. The bottoms were just the state of mind. And I could have, I had a lot, a lot, a lot of what people would call physical bottoms and mental bottoms. And it just didn't matter. I would get a period of recovery afterwards, and I was off and running again. And um, I... um you know, I have almost nine months now working the steps, abstinent, and and I know that I am just so one bite away, one willful thought away from being right back in there and throwing that abstinence kit out of my car and replacing it with the crap in my wheel well again. And um, I stay close to this program, and I work a vigilant program um, some people, and, and sometimes my disease says, you know, you're pretty obsessive about it. But it's not. It's vigilant. My disease wants me to think I am obsessive and a little anal um, about my recovery, my abstinence, and my weighing and measuring. And and I say, you know, screw you, disease. I am vigilant. You know, I am vigilant with my program today. I have to do a lot, um, and I'm willing to do it today. Thank God for that. Um, and that's it. I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Alice. Go ahead, Liz. Janice, I think it was Kim. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead, Miss Kim. <laughs> Morning, Janice. Morning, all. My name is Kim G, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. I'm getting all teary here. Um, I reflected there is enough gin concealed about the house. I would need it before daylight on this bleak November. And uh, it was exactly three years ago, January 9, 2011, that this happened to me that this was what was going to catapult me to the fourth dimension. I was walking 
in a snowstorm and my little Jack Russell zigged when I tried to zag and I looked down and my foot was facing 150 degrees in the wrong direction. I wound up having surgery the next day. I am bed bound in the worst tan I've ever been in. And I am finally having to admit that after three years of me and my sponsor deciding that we would change our abstinence, because if you change your abstinence, you can stay abstinent. We just started saying our binge foods were a part of our food plan. And we both co-signed each other's BS, and I put on 50 pounds in like a five-year period. was in a way no one ever said a word to me, ever said a word to me. And as I was laying there, bed-bound, could, you know, couldn't I go to bed in the worst pain I've ever been in, I had to finally admit that I was in relapse. I had to finally admit my sponsor called me and told me she was in relapse and couldn't work with me, and I was isolated, and I was terrified, and I could barely move. And I, would had, I had food hidden throughout the house. I had to actually stoop to the place. I had to ask my parents who were taking care of me to buy my binge foods for me. And then I would keep them throughout my house because I was walking on a, a walker with a little backpack in front of it. And I would be sitting in the couch, you know, wanting to just pee my pants because I didn't have the strength to get up and go to the bathroom. But yet if those binge foods ran out, I was definitely willing to get up and go to the refrigerator or the pantry so I could restock. And I had them hidden in boxes because I have dogs. And if I left them out in the coffee table, they would eat them. So this was my life. You know, what is so scary for Bill is he doesn't know there's an answer. I had been in OA for 17 years, and I would sit there crying and go, can I even do it one more time? Can I humiliate myself one more time to go back to OA? Is it going to work this time? It hasn't worked. It's only been a temporary respite. It's only been these pockets of abstinence. Can I do it again? as I was sitting there rationalizing all that I was eating. And we're going to hear about Ebby calling Bill at this point. This is the miracle. This is God interceding. Someone I hadn't heard from in over three years happened to call me by mistake because she saw an article in the Lifeline and thought it was me. A woman with my name in my hometown wrote an article and she called me by mistake and she told me about a phone meeting. I had never done a phone meeting. I was a face-to-face girl. Those people who did phone meetings were wusses. And by calling her, she, she got me to listen to a phone meeting which broke through the denial. Not the denial of just being in the disease, but the denial of being in a way. The denial of being in a way and so many years using it as a diet program, rationalizing why I can eat this and why I can eat that, randomly doing the steps whenever it felt convenient. So today, January 9th, when I broke my ankle, which I thought was such a tragedy, wound up being the catalyst that rocketed me into the fourth dimension. And for that, I am grateful. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim. Liz, are you there? Would you like to press star one to unmute? Hi, I'm Sheila. May I share? I already shared. It's Liz. Oh, you did. All right. Thank you. Thank you. My ears are not waking up so good this morning. All right. Who was it that wanted to share? Sheila? Go ahead. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi. Thank you. Good morning. Thank you for your service. Sheila H. from New York, recovering another day. Thank you, God. I wanted to identify with this because that feeling of looking for stash and putting things in, I simulated when the storm is coming here and people are in the stores, the parking lots are full with cars because they think the storm is going to be so bad that the food trucks or whatever won't get through for days. And I've noticed that all the time. And then I noticed that in my own way, I wouldn't run to the store that day. But if I knew it was coming, you know, I would still prep and make sure I had everything that I needed. Not not been food, just that I needed to feel that I had everything in my house. I've lived in New York my whole life. There's only once as a child I remember a milk and bread truck couldn't get through. And yet it's such a learned behavior and environmental thing that I watch around me, at least in my area. You know, I may have to go two towns over to get bread because there's no bread anywhere. People just have this feeling of deprivation is not going to be enough. And, um, and I can identify probably from the very humble beginnings of 
what it feels like to make sure you have enough around you. Um, so grateful today that I can see that and have that gift of awareness because it definitely has implanted a shift in that thinking. And I don't run out to the stores and stock the cupboards up just because the weather is changing. Thanks for letting me share, and I pass. Yeah, El. Thank you, Sheila. Um, Raquel. It's yeah, El from Israel. Uh, oh, you. go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, okay, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, what you I wanted one. was. Uh, sorry. Oh, okay. Everyone can can uh, mute your phone so that we have a quiet line. Acceptance Thank you. Okay, thank you. This is Yael from Israel, compulsive overeater, recovering compulsive overeater. Um, I so identify with hiding things around the house. Um, of course, I gave it the excuse that it's for my kids, but then I stashed it away, never telling them and never putting it out for them. And for me, even when I was that's looking back now, I can see when I was really willing surrender and when I wasn't because each time I, after a relapse that I would try doing program again and I'd be like okay today's the day I'd say in the back of my mind but I always have this for a security blanket just in case program doesn't work for me I can always go back to this and of course I always fail, failed when I knew that was there but once I conceded got to that the lowest point of ever a feeling I'm either going to die or, and by the way, I got to that point of I'm either going to die or I'm going to do this program. And my goal weight already had nothing to do with my weight. It had to do with my mental obsession. But anyway, once I got to that point and that surrender, then there was no buying anything just in case it doesn't work for me. So thank you, God. Thank you for today. And uh, thank you, everyone on the line. With that, I pass. Thank you, Yael. We have time for one person to sh- more to share. There's anyone else, and then we'll move on to the next paragraph. Is there anyone who wants to comment on this paragraph before we move on? Barbara. Janice from Massachusetts. Barbara. <laughs> All right, let's go ahead with Barbara first, and I'll get everybody in line. Thank you, Barbara. Thank you. This is Barbara. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. And I'm very glad to be looking at this um, horror of the night because it takes me back to what the horror of the night was for me. Just as Bill says, you know, he had something hidden. Could he make it till daylight? I haven't thought about this in a long time. But I'm remembering before program being so desperate and wanting to not have the madness of the night strike me that I asked my husband to lock the kitchen and hide the key so that when I got up during the night, the children were asleep, I wouldn't be able to get into the kitchen. And as many other things did, that worked for a very short time. But when the darkness and the loneliness and all that it was described previously, the morass of self-pity set on and there was the long night and I didn't have a God that I could turn to, I didn't have a program that I could turn to, I started taking the food out of the kitchen before he locked it and hide the key. Now, was I crazy? Yeah, I mean, that that definitely answers it. Coming to OA with an early sponsor who dealt with this, the night and the long nights for me, she gave me a psalm. You know, weeping may endure the night, but joy comes in the morning. And I would say that. And then I did an adaptation Weeping may endure the night, but breakfast comes in the morning, you know, getting through those first nights. Then a turning point came when I was willing to break that need and that pattern. When I called a person in a way who was on what they called at that time a night owl network, and she said, stay in your bed. It was like three o'clock in the morning. And she read the big book to me until I fell asleep. That was the turning point for me, just as Bill keeps reaching turning points. That was a big turning point, and she and I remember that um, to this day, um, you know, what that what that call was like and how significant that was. So I thank God now that I love the embrace of the, the darkness of the night 
and the prayer time. And if I'm sleepless, I mean, there can be prayer, there can be reading, there can be music. Thank God for the relief of that madness and loneliness of the nights. Thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Barb. And who else besides Barb would like to share? Janice, please, Janice. Go ahead, Janice. Well, thank you, Janice, for your service. My name is Janice M, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater from Massachusetts. You know that very first line, when I was in disease, it says, a bleak November 1st. Well, whether it was going to be a snowy, snowy day, you know, where I live, it snows around this time. And um, I would get prepared because, you know, on a snow day, if I didn't get my binge foods, you know, uh, what would I do? So I would make sure whether, you know, just another excuse, another excuse, no matter how much pain I was in prior, isn't this disease something? It is cunning, baffling, and powerful because no matter how much pain, you know, um, I, I couldn't get rid of it myself because the obsession of the mind was still there. Um, certain satisfaction, oh, I, I knew now that I was all set in case I was snowed in for three days. You say, no matter what pain I went through before, what fear, now the fear turned around. You see, he feared it up in the second paragraph there that that would sober him up. Now he was fearing, oh, I better make sure I have enough. And then he would hide. And, you know, nobody, I mean, my husband is not a compulsive overeater. He, I, he never hid any food. <laughs> he never did. He didn't have to. He wasn't worried about having enough, but I did. And that's a big sign for, for me and for others. You know, if you have to hide your food, something is abnormal about that. You know, and I used to hide it so, I, you know, I would have enough for company that comes, but it was hiding for me, Self, you know, selfishness, making sure that I had it. And with that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thanks, Janice. Thank you, Janice. Is there anyone else who'd like to share before we move on? Let's move on to the next paragraph. And Esther, could you read that for us? Good morning. My name is Esther, and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in Canada. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. The cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. It was years since I could remember his coming to New York in that condition. I was amazed. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity, I wondered how he had escaped. Of course he would have dinner, and then I could drink openly with him. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. There was the time that we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. The very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So this paragraph is introducing us to the person who's going to begin a cycle of events that will change Bill's life. This is his friend, Ebby Thatcher. And Ebby had been charged for some disturbances he had committed while he was drunk. And at that time, some members of the Oxford group, the spiritual Oxford group, um, offered the judge to um, uh, overlook his jail sentence, and they would uh, bring him into their under their wings and show him a spiritual way of living so that he could remain sober. And the judge agreed. So now as part of Ebby's own spiritual work, he had to pass along this spiritual message to others, and, and, and that's why he um, was coming over to Bill to speak to him. So Ebby you know, was coming to carry a message to Bill. He was throwing him a lifeline. This is a pivotal encounter for Bill, and although he doesn't know it, his life is about to change. And one thing I always like to point out is that Ebby had only been sober now for a couple of months, and yet he was able to carry that message to Bill. Bill just grabbed that lifeline, because, and we'll, as we're going to read soon, because he was desperate. And I remember that moment for myself as well, almost seven years ago, when I finally decided to come back to OA, and I had heard someone speaking and talking about, you know, carrying, carrying the message, telling us how she had transformed and how her life had changed. And I remember calling someone after the meeting and saying, how can I get a sponsor? And on the spot, that woman offered to be my sponsor. I, too, grabbed hold of that lifeline. I knew I knew nothing about her other than her name and the fact that she had what I wanted. I did not ask her for her credentials. I did not ask her how much time she'd been in program. I did not ask her if she was like me, the same life circumstances. 
All I knew was that I was desperate, and if someone was throwing me a lifeline, I was going to grab it. So again, Bill does not know that his life is about to change, but it is. He's going to reach out and grab what Ebby's offering him. And like we read earlier in one of the forewords, each day recovery begins when one alcoholic talks with another, alcoholic sharing experience, strength, and hope. So a beautiful chain of recovery is about to begin here. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Esther. Yeah, Who would Alex. like to come This is Larry. Hiya. Go ahead, Yael. Yael, Larry, and Hiya. Thank you. Uh, this is Yael, recovering from overeater from Israel. I just also wanted to share that moment where, ironically, the friend who originally introduced me to the OA program and um, I did find abstinence, but not recovery, for several years. Um, thank God, <laughs> several years later was the same friend who called me. She knew I was struggling. I actually had um, had rationalized why I was relapsing, thinking, well, maybe it's because I didn't have my binge foods for so long that now I have to run back to them. And maybe if I never even did the program at all, and I learned to moderate, then it wouldn't be, then it, I wouldn't be in the situation I'm in, and I was resentful. And the same friend called me back and saved me again from the gates of hell and pulled me out by telling me about this wonderful meeting, the, wonder, the wonderful way of life, and the program of recovery, and also, most importantly, also what my problem was. Thank you for letting me share. Hi, this is Larry. Can you hear me? Nancy. Larry, go ahead. I can hear you, Larry. Okay, sorry about that, Janice. (laughs) Can you hear me okay? Yes. We can. Go ahead, Larry. Okay, okay, great. This is Larry, recovered compulsive over here from Chicago. Thanks, uh, Janice, for your service. Um, Um. yeah, we all have a catalyst. We all have uh, a moment. I can really, you know, this is part of identification. Identification is just such a critical thing. I used to be um, uh, somewhat ashamed to share my story of how I, shame is such a part of this disease for me, um, ashamed as to how I uh, came about learning about a 12-step program. Um, but I, I today, I, I don't regret the past, and I'll share it. Um, you know, as uh, someone working in clinical psychology, I, I actually, you know, several years ago was uh, was working with an individual who um, who had been uh, in recovery, a 12-step uh, recovery program for many years. We weren't meeting about that. We were meeting, you know, just about some other life issues. And what what a great guy this was. I I wish I could remember his name. I'd love to be able to thank this person. But but the the ironic thing for me, I think there's some irony with some of this stuff, and maybe there was for Bill when he when he was retelling his story was, you know, I, here I am, you know, a therapist working with this this gentleman, you know, I had the privilege to work with this gentleman, and I was just trying to really relate and identify with him to help him. Oh, but see, God had another plan for Larry. See, Larry probably I don't remember, but I'm sure. Um, I binged my way to that meeting uh, with anticipatory, you know, anxiety about, you know, binging myself after the meeting. And and then in the midst of that, you know, this gentleman, I, I remember saying as he was sharing his story, of course, he'd been in 12-step for many years, he said, um, I, I, I said to him first, I said, you know, I, I can't identify with your, you know, directly with, with your experience because he had asked, um, but with alcohol and, and drugs and so forth, I said, but, you know, with me, I, I can sort of relate with eating. And he said, I just remember him looking at me with a smile, and he said, he goes, he goes that's really interesting. Here, I thought I was connecting with him, right? He said, um, you know, there's something called OA. He goes, I'm not too familiar with it. He goes, but I know it's patterned after the 12-step program I work. And, you know, I sat on that for six months. God has an interesting way of working. 
I, I, I'd like to think he's got a sense of humor, but that was my experience. Six months later, um, I, I looked into this, and the rest is history. See, God planted that seed as he did with Bill, and what a, a, a magnificent transformation it's been for me, and uh, I'm so very grateful. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, Larry. Um, Haya, you're next. Hi, thanks, Melanie. Hi, everybody. This is Haya, recovered compulsive eater and bulimic in Denver, Colorado, and I've adjusted to the time change, so I'm up for the meeting live instead of the recording. Um, and welcome, everyone, and welcome if you're new. Um, what I would like to uh, focus on here in this paragraph is, you know, we've seen the the, the downward spiral, these, these, he's um, discussed on the page before, the quicksand stretching all around me, overwhelmed. Um, he, he went into the hospital, he got sober for a bit, and then he was off again. And, and then he's sitting in the kitchen drinking, even though he, right, we've already discussed that he, he knows he has to stop, he knows he can't do it, and yet he's still drinking. And what happens when the phone rings? You know, we, we've been focusing on the fact that he's going to be catapulted into this new life but what really happens here first he gets you know the the he gets in his musing right his his musing of getting the alcohol and you know, he's going to need alcohol tonight and tomorrow his wife's not home so he can drink all he wants he gets this phone call from his school friend him which he was sober it's in the squiggly writing which means it's important he was sober and then he says I wonder how he had escaped, right, this committed alcohol insanity and Esther had shared, you know, the, the Oxford group pleaded with the judge to let him out. But here, here it says, I, of course he would have dinner and then I could drink openly with him. He's not thinking this guy is sober, maybe he'll help me. He's thinking, this is an old school friend, I'll be able to drink openly with him. Here, here we go. Here's the selfishness and self-centeredness that is plagued by an alcoholic and a compulsive eater for me in the grips of the disease, running on self-will instead of God's will. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. Right? There, and then he's, then he's thinking about all this wonderful times. You know, these wonderful times. There was the time we had chartered an airplane to complete a jag. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. Very thing, an oasis. Drinkers are like that. So he's not focusing on the fact that, oh, my God, here's this friend coming, and maybe he'll help me, maybe I can get sober. He's thinking, how can I drink more? And that is, and we discussed it yesterday, and Kim so eloquently spoke about it yesterday, that thinking through the last drink does not keep me sober. Thinking through the last drink makes me fantasize about what it would be like, to, you know, how I can recapture, right, the, the, the feeling. And, and certainly, obviously, there's, there's some remorse here, here there, and, 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 you know, here and there, but it doesn't keep us sober, doesn't keep us absent, doesn't keep me recovered. What keeps me recovered is going, is, is, this, is this formula called the 12 steps, which he will be introduced to shortly. Um, he knows he, he can't drink, but he doesn't know yet that there's a power greater than himself that can restore him to sanity, and, uh, and that we're going to learn very soon. So pretty selfish and self-centered we, uh, we drinkers are, we, we eaters are. Um, not, not pretty. <laughs> not pretty at all. With that, I'll pass. Thank you. Thank you, Hira. Would anyone else like to comment on this paragraph? This is Sarah <laughs> Sally. Okay, I heard Sarah, Leah, Sally. Let's start there. Go ahead, Sarah. Did I hear? Did I hear Sarah? Go ahead, Leah. Sharon. Thank you so much, Janice, for your service. Good morning, everybody. My name is Leah. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater. I just wanted to touch on this. Unmindful of his welfare, I thought only of recapturing the spirit of other days. His coming was an oasis in this dreary desert of futility. 
Um, you know, that is the mindset of uh, an alcoholic, the mindset of a compulsive overeater. I can relate to that. I mean, here's someone, uh, you know, obviously sober, someone, Ebby, had been challenged with, you know, an alcoholic history, uh, but Bill is unmindful of his welfare, essentially, uh, you know, it's a me and myself and I kind of attitude, you know, this is, this is our foolishness, you know, we're living in the past thinking that we can recapture the spirit of other days. Bill is hoping to recapture that, you know, uh, the chapter A Vision for You uh, highlights that, you know, when it says, um, you know, that... Um, for most normal folks, drinking means conviviality, companionship, colorful imagination. I mean, we think we can recapture uh, that which we think was wonderful. We think that was wonderful. Wow, it was so much fun that time that we chartered an airplane to complete a jag. You know, we just keep chasing that tail of that dragon, um, you know, that's the nature of addiction. We are obsessively uh, driven to pursue feeling good. And um, no matter how bad it makes us feel, <laughs> it's irrational. But that is the course of addiction. You know, when we use our substances, uh, perhaps as a compulsive overeater, I got, you know, five-minute lift from um, binging. Um, however, whatever goes up must come down. You know, it just reminds me of of glorifying the gory days. You know, I think I can ca recapture that which was wonderful. What, the first 10 seconds of relief that I felt when I would, uh, you know, tear open a cellophane bag in a dark uh, car in a parking lot uh, late at night when I had a loving husband awaiting me at home. Uh, ten, ten, the first, you know, 10 seconds where, uh, you know, I could seek that ease and comfort and dig my fists into those bags and boxes. And then after that, it was all downhill. <laughs> then after that, it was like, oh, you know, how the heck did I get here again? You know, I was abstinent this morning. What's going on now that I've got piles and piles of, of binge foods on the passenger seat in my car? And there I would sit for hours upon hours, binging my brains out until my eyeballs hurt, watching other people outside my window participate in life. And that's what I thought I was recapturing? <laughs> that's what was wonderful? You know, that, that oasis is, is, is what... Uh, you know, Dr. William Silkworth refers to is we seek the ease and comfort. We are per in pursuit of seeking the ease and comfort. This is where it really becomes clear that, um, you know, life is uncomfortable <laughs> for someone like me. And that is where the steps come in. Because if I'm seeking ease and comfort in a higher power, I no longer need to recapture quote unquote that what I, which what I thought was wonderful. And with that I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah. And go ahead, Sally. Thank you, Janice. Good morning, a vision for you. This is Sally A, um, recovered compulsive overeater in South Jersey. Um, so I love this paragraph. This is uh, really interesting. My musing was interrupted by the telephone. How many people can remember having their binge interrupted by anything, by the phone, by a friend? And um, here you, you've got him in his mindset. My musing was interrupted. He, in this last paragraph that we just read, we see him setting up his binge He's got everything set up nicely. He's got everything con concealed around the house. His wife is at work, so he can do it in isolation with no guilt that somebody's watching him. And he, he's feeling really happy, like, oh, I'm so perfect. I've got everything I need in my house, and I can isolate here. And he's all set up. My musing was interrupted by the telephone, the cheery voice of an old school friend asked if he might come over. He was sober. In italics, he was sober. That's important. It was years since I could remember him, his coming to New York in that condition, sober. He says, I was amazed. Why was he amazed? He was amazed because his friend was sober. His drinking buddy 
was sober. That's not normal. Rumor had it that he had been committed for alcoholic insanity. I wondered how he had escaped. And this sentence to me is one of the most genius sentences, one of his many genius sentences, because it's foreshadowing. He asks this question for now. I wondered how he escaped specifically from um, being committed for, for alcoholic insanity is what he's referring to. I wondered how he had escaped because rumor had it that he was locked up for alcoholic insanity. But he's going to wonder very soon how he escaped from the disaster that he's living in presently. I wondered how he had escaped. That's foreshadowing. Of course, he would have dinner. Now he's got all of his expectations on the table. Of course, he's going to have dinner. And then we're going to be drinking buddies again. And we're going to, continue, we're going to talk about our, the old days, all the joy that we've had and, and all of the stories we can tell each other about the old days of our drinking. Oh, this is going to be fun. He's getting himself set up. And his expectation is, my buddy Ebby's coming. He's a little bit curious and he's a little bit concerned and amazed that he's sober, but he's still got his expectation nailed down that we're going to have fun. My drinking buddy's coming. With that, I pass. Thanks for letting me share. Thank you, Sally. And go ahead, Sharon. Oh, thank you, Janet. This is Sharon. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Okay, thank you so much, and thank you for your service and thank you to everybody out on the line and I just uh, was going back to the past uh, pages pretty much three through eight where we're at today and just wrote down these things that I could so identify with what happened to, to me before I heard this meeting on the line. Uh, first it was I had arrived, I had a host of Fairweather friends, then the next one was oh my gosh I woke up, I had to stop. And then shortly afterward, I came home drunk again. Where had been my fight? There was no fight. And then renewing my resolve, I tried again. And in no time, there I was beating on the bar, asking myself, how did it happen again? Well, next time I would do better, but now I'll just get good and drunk. And I did. And then two more years, I experienced this agony back in the hospital, the kindness of the doctor telling me, though I was selfish, I had been seriously ill mentally and physically. Now I had renewed hope, the goose hung high. The answer was self-knowledge, but it was not because then I drank again. Now the loneliness and despair, I experienced a bitter morass of self-pity how dark it is before the dawn. And then an old friend called. He came over. He was sober with Evie Thatcher. God's grace shows up at just the right time, God's time, in the person of his old friend, Evie. And that just uh, identifying with that so much because this uh, period of time that I went through so painfully the last two years before I began listening to this meeting and I, too, called an old friend um, that I had known many years before and had um, given me that first hope many years ago that maybe I could get abstinent, stay abstinent. But I see now I truly was trying to just diet with group support. I didn't believe the uh, reality of it was mentally and physically ill. I got a lot of it mixed up with the emotions because I have... Um, you know, the emotional, mentally ill part of me, too. And so, um, you know, to me, I just see this is the beginning. It is so true. This is the beginning of God working in the mind of Bill to catapult him into that fourth dimension of living that he had tried over and over and over again and did not succeed and that was the grace of God in the person of Ebby Thatcher coming to tell him, you are going to be cover, but it's in God's, in God's time, and it's in God's uh, working through you through these steps, which they weren't even in existence, basically, at that point. And so with that, I pass. I'm so grateful to be here, and welcome to everybody out on the line. Thank you. I pass. Thank you, Karen. 
Well, we'll close the meeting here today. Thank you to everyone who shared, and thank you for all technical help behind the scenes, and for everyone for your patience today. And thank you for a great meeting. We will now close with the reading from the Big Book on page 164, followed by the Serenity Prayer. And do could you please read that for us? Good morning. This is Du, uh, Recover Compulsible Reader. Our book is meant to be suggestive only. We realize we know only a little. God will constantly disclose more to you and to us. Ask him in your morning meditation what you can do each day for the man who is still sick. The answers will come if your own house is in order. But obviously, you cannot transmit something you haven't got. See to it that your relationship with him is right, and great events will come to pass for you and countless others. This is a great fact for us. Abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Pass.